Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with uh, the high-performing and remarkable Irene Liu. Irene is the Chief Legal Officer um, at Hoppen, and she takes us through her career that started actually outside of law. She was an investment banker, um, uh, and then she got some grounding in the government um, with the Department of Justice as well as the Foreign Trade, FTC, um, and then her move into essentially um, technology companies, Black, BlackBerry, right through to Lookout Checker, and most recently, of course, at Hoppen. So it's a fantastic story, um, a very deliberate um, uh, career, if I can put it that way, that um, Irene um, planned out for herself. And um, some of the takeaways that and what I found most interesting is she talks about her time. Um, some of the challenges around that, and, and actually some of the challenges around now, the, um, uh, now that uh, the economy is has changed, um, some of the challenges she's facing around that. But it's a fantastic discussion. Also, talk about um, as an Asian American, she's very, of course, passionate uh, around diversity, inclusion, and she talks about that. Um, it's a great discussion. I could have gone on for hours, but we didn't. Um, so, in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Irene Lou, it's fantastic to see you again and to have you on board. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Thanks so much for inviting me to this, Jim. Yes. Now, the, of course, the audience doesn't know we met a few weeks ago and we had a cracking dinner, but we won't go into that right now. Um, take us through, Irene, the Irene Lou story right back and take us through the arc of your career. What got you interested in law in the first place? And, um, uh, and tell us a little bit about your career today. Sure. After college, I actually went into investment banking. Um, so law was not initially in the plan, but I entered investment banking when it was 9-11. So right at, when I started in July, um, two months after 9-11 happened, and I lived in New York City, right in downtown. And so the world changed very quickly after that. And obviously the financial industry also changed very quickly. Um, so in the midst of during those times, I decided that I wanted to make a pivot. And I also was a liberal arts major. And so at the end of the day, I wanted to pursue something that um, that that was a bit more uh, on, on the legal side. That was some, an area that I'd always been interested in. And so I moved to law. Um, I was fortunate enough to get into Berkeley for law school. And I moved to California from New York. And then after law school, started up my career in the government. So unlike most people that enter right into law firms, I actually went straight to government. So I started my career at the U.S. Department of Justice in the Antitrust Division. And then I moved to the Federal Trade Commission. So I have a unique background of having um, an understanding of the government before moving in-house to BlackBerry. And, and, and was that a deliberate decision? Uh, Irene, did you actually set yourself up to say, okay, I, I want um, the government experience first? And if so, I'd be interested to, just to know why. What was it? What, what was the thinking? Why, why was that the first um, uh, stage of your career? Yeah, I was actually, it was a very intentional decision. 
Um, I had offers at Baker McKenzie and Davis Polk. They were both premier law firms. And um, I turned those down to make a fraction <laughs> and work in the government. And uh, if anything, my first year DOJ salary was lower than even my first year out of college salary. <laughs> and so it took an intentional decision. Um, and the reason why I chose that is because I wanted to um, give back. I think law is a career where you could do that very well and uh, and advocate for the public. And I, I've always found um, serving the public or public interest and mission-oriented company something that is special to me. And so the DOJ, of course, had a role in enforcing antitrust laws, and I was fortunate enough to get into their attorney general's honors program. And so I um, knew that it would be a really great training ground as well. So given that the government, um, like the government, frankly, they don't have as much resources as law firms. So even junior attorneys are thrown all different things. And I was doing depositions and other things as my first year um, attorney. And so I knew that it would be a really great substantive experience, so I wanted to do, pursue government work. So, and looking back on that now, and thinking about how that helped really kind of um, set some foundational aspects for you a, a, as an attorney, as a general counsel. Now, what what, what kind of stands out for you um, from that early? government experience? Actually, it's been incredibly important for tech companies in general. So, um, for example, I worked at a company called Checker as a general counsel. And Checker is a highly regulated company. It's regulated by both the FTC and the CFPB. And so having an understanding of the workings of the FTC, having worked there has been incredibly valuable in understanding how we approach them. Uh, and I also wrote an article series on Thomson Reuters on um, knocking on government doors. So having worked in the government, I understand the value in proactively approaching government uh, versus most law firms that would probably advise against it. But I think there is a way you can actually pursue uh, a, a great relationship with government that educates them about all the technology that you're developing so that they understand the, the enforcement environment as well. And, and um and thinking about well, well, your first move, say, say out of government to, to BlackBerry, um, did you take some of that kind of experience, the, the learning, the um, you know what you've written about knocking on government doors? Did you get to apply that BlackBerry, or, or did that start really coming to fruition a little bit later? Yeah, no, BlackBerry was um, was was really great experience. At the time that I went to BlackBerry, it was uh, heavily in use. It was it was in its heyday, not not where it is today. Correct. I, I was just I was just looking 2010 to 2013. That's prime, although Apple is knocking seriously yes, at the yes. door. Apple was knocking, but um, BlackBerry was yeah. very prevalently used at the time. Yeah. And so yeah. we had um, challenges globally with a lot of government regulators trying to um, access user information and user data because BlackBerry was known to be so secure. And so because of that, we had to develop a lot of relationships with governments uh, across the globe. And I was one of the primary um, primary attorneys that was responsible for building those relationships. So frankly, I traveled around the globe from Australia to Indonesia, which was our third largest market, to UK and um, Spain Mexico, Canada, multiple countries to develop these relationships with regulators, advocate for BlackBerry, and also um, felicitate like a liaison relationship. 
Um, and, and then I can see your last few positions, Lookout, Checker, and now, of course, uh, with Hoppen. Uh, tell me how your career has kind of developed and the deliberateness or otherwise of those decisions for you and what, you know, what you're focusing on. What, 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 what was it in your career that you wanted to develop in making those decisions um, to, or the decision to join those companies? What, what were you looking for? Yeah, at BlackBerry, I had a really great policy government-related experience, uh, but at the same time, it was uh, very narrow in scope in, in, in that it was mostly a compliance as well as a policy-related role. Um, I love learning. That's what drives me. And I wanted to go to a company where I could learn. And um, at the time that I was looking, and I had to look because BlackBerry, again, was reaching a different point in its market <laughs> towards later of its stages where it felt right that um, that it's probably time for me to move on. And so when I started looking for my next opportunity, Lookout was a really great um role for me in a sense that it's a small legal department, it's a startup, I would be able to dabble in multiple areas of the law and really strengthen my skill set to become a general counsel. And so going into a smaller legal department where I would get the breadth and the scope was really enticing to me. And so I intentionally made the decision after BlackBerry to go to Lookout, which is also a mobile security company. So it has content that I, that context that I fully understand, but I would have more opportunities in terms of learning and scope. And so I moved to Lookout for that reason. And so when you joined Hoppen, what, what were the, t- tell me about the, uh, and you've only been, well, you've been there just over a year and a half. As soon as you land, you join, what are the key priorities? And perhaps tell the audience a little bit about Hoppen, the space it's in, um, and what what was your 90-day plan when you joined, having had the first 90 days? And then I'd be interested to know how that's changed and what you're focused on now, to, to the extent, of course, you can share that with us. Sure. Um, Hoppen is a company that just hit its three-year-old mark. Um, we started pre-pandemic, and the idea that our founder, Johnny, our founder CEO, had was that he wanted to build a virtual events, um, events company, and it was pre-COVID, but once COVID hit, obviously, the popularity of that product was incredibly immense. And so we grew incredibly fast in the last uh, few years to support that demand. Obviously, um, we're now reaching a different point of stabilization, but during those growth years, it was um, it was incredibly, um, it, was, it was very fast-paced. Um, and within that Time period, we also did about five to six M&As and two financings that valued us at $7.75 billion. So a company that's less than three years old was completing five to six acquisitions um, plus two financings in a matter of one year. And my first 90 days consisted of, um, was not like most 90 days. Most people come in with a 90-day plan. When I came in day one, we were in the midst of a... um, a large acquisition, a StreamYard acquisition, which was our largest acquisition to date. And so I had to help close that. And that closed within my first two weeks. I also had a board meeting in my first two weeks. Uh, At the same time, I had a number of other things um, from a hiring perspective that I needed to do. And within my first 90 days as well, I remember I started in, again, December. And in February, the last week of February, we closed three deals. We closed two M&As and one financing my first, um, uh, close to my 90th day. Um, so 
the 90-day plan is not was very atypical and required a lot of execution, heavy um, lifting and rolling of, of my sleeves in every way from day one. It's funny, as a founder of a startup and um, in a d- different stage but trying to scale up, I'm just thinking, I, I have a thousand questions, Not a, I'm not going to ask them all in relation to the challenges that you faced in scaling because there, I can just imagine whether it's across cultural challenges, whether it's onboarding, whether there must be, what what are the two or three that absolutely stand out for you that you say, this is what you have to get right when you're in a position of rapid growth and scaling up um, uh, to the degree that you were, or, or, or to any degree, what are the things that you have to get right as a general counsel? And perhaps more broadly, I'll, I'll, I'll let you um, uh, let you answer that how you like. But I'm really interested. Yeah, I think it's important to get the culture right more than anything. And we're a fully distributed company, so we uh, are in 40 plus countries. And so while we're scaling, we're also um, very distributed. So in order to build a company culture, you need to make sure. Um, you build that tightness and connection. And so we actually leveraged our Hopin platform with all of our all hands, with our onboarding. Um, and so we use our own products to bring that collaborative spirit and to bring the Hopin culture alive. You know, we have our Hopin values. One of the big things is no ego. And so that's something that we're very proud of. And we talked about our values every week, week after week. Um, to ensure that we create this culture that we're all e- equally proud to be a part of, regardless of where we're located. Yeah, I have to say, no ego is one of my favorite principles and actually really living it. Um, one of those things, they're all like this, they're easy to say, harder to do. Um, but the no ego one, I reckon, is, is, uh, should, be on, should be on everyone's culture. List. Um, okay, culture. What? What else? What else do you have to get right um, when you're scaling um, to the degree that that Hopin was? Yeah, I mean, culture is just so important because it brings everybody together. Uh, and then after that is um, one of the things that we really needed to work on to make sure that we brought that experience alive for folks is the legal finance and um, people team met every week. I mean, in the beginning, we didn't have, um, we needed to scale out our processes as well as um, to to ensure that every employee has a great experience. We want everyone at Hopin to feel like a proud Hopinier with um, very similar benefits, very similar type of um, culture. And so we met on a weekly basis to talk about all of the different countries that we're in, all of the different types of equity treatment that we needed to go through. And and we really needed to work through country by country. And that took time, um, but we went through it and we, um, and it was a very cross collaborative effort, but because we have this great low ego culture, you know, everyone's rolling up their sleeves and we have such a fantastic team of executives as well as team all across the globe who are willing to roll up their sleeves at all levels from top to the the IC level. And that helped us to get all of those groundworks in place as well. Yeah. Yeah. And and tell me a little bit about, I mean, the legal function, how it's grown since you've been there and and perhaps what are the two or three things that you have in mind over the course of the next 12 months uh, for your function? 
From the legal function standpoint, so when we were growing, when I started, I was the first attorney in. And so everything was completely uh, needed to be re-looked at, um, to say the least. And so also within my first 90 days, in addition to the two M&As and, and um, the three M&As and one financing that I had to do, I actually hired three people within my first 90 days as well, too. And the two people that I hired first were commercial attorneys, because obviously you want to make sure the sales machine is continually, continually running. And that's one of the most important functions as a, as a legal team is to help support the commercial side. Um, secondly, you know, we also had multiple transactions going. So I hired a corporate attorney as well, too. So from that time of December 2021, I helped build out a team that was, um, you know, over 20, um, mostly because we have two functions that I'm overseeing. I'm also seeing not only overseeing legal and compliance, but trust and safety. And so trust and safety uh, requires additional um, headcount. So I have a team um, that encompasses both. And OK, so priorities for the next 12 months for you, what, what, what's top of mind for you in the legal department um, over the course of the next 12 months? Yeah, obviously the markets have changed very dramatically. And, and, and so I think there's a lot of tough decisions that we need to make as a, as a company, as a business. And so supporting those, supporting our pivots and making sure that we also are nimble enough to be able to support those, I think are the most important priorities, if anything. Um, we're focusing uh, on, on making sure that we build a product that is um, that that is product-led growth, that can create product-led growth. And so supporting that would be one of our most important priorities. Yeah. Um, any specific strategies um, to to achieve that? Uh, I mean, for example, after, in discussions I've had with other GCs, they talk about um, steps they take to, to better integrate legal with product, um, where um, whether it's physically, in the case of a um, uh, if you're not remote, or um, uh, some of the reporting, some of the dotted reporting lines, so that the lawyer um, is part of the product team from inception, from um, and rather than at the product release point. That's one example. Anything specific that you do um, uh, or that your team does to to really embed legal, you know, within the business product or otherwise. Yeah, I think our team, and this go, goes to the, the, all credit goes to the team, frankly, they're very good at enabling the business partners. So I, I do think a lot of the relationship building comes when you are a good enablers. So our commercial lawyers, for example, they join a lot of the go-to-market um, all hands. They're part of it. They're part of the presentations. They give presentations. One of the presentations they were wrapping to M&M or... Um, you know, they're incorporating legal concepts with that. And one of our commercial leads, um, she's so creative and she's basically created a number of hop tunes, which are cartoons that explain legal concepts in very easy to understand terms in less than five minutes, where you can watch these cartoons that break out the contract and how um, you can negotiate certain terms. So we're, we're catering to the audience and the culture to build enablement so that we look approachable and we are approachable and they know that when they come to us, we will help. So I think first of all is building that culture of enablement and that's the same on the product side. So we want to get in front of all hands to get to know people because at the end of the day, it's going to be hard unless you're a very large company 
to be part of that all product cycle from the beginning. The goal is to establish a relationship where they, where the PMs know that you will not block, that you will be uh, helpful. And so building that enablement culture is important. And secondly, I think it's really important for um, the product teams to um, not only see that you can, that you, you can be helpful, um, but it's also incorporating um, office hours and other ways that they can reach you more quickly and prioritizing. Uh, I think um, PMs don't want to consult a lawyer for tier three launches. Prioritizing a tier, tier one launch, for example, that is impactful and looping in lawyers early for those, I think is a very reasonable request. So starting from there, especially at smaller companies, is will be impactful in building that relationship with the product and getting your feet wet and making sure that the business knows that your team is there to help. And, and um, it, it is all about it's about relationships, trust, um, uh, taking the time. I talk about sometimes trying to walk in someone else's shoes too, and also you know within the company, really understanding what are the goals and what are the objectives and what am I here to do, and ultimately in-house, you are always there to enable. Um, and then working out what that actually means in your specific context, that's key. Uh, I love some of the creative <laughs> um, uh, examples that you've shared with your team. Um, I often think many lawyers, the creativity of many lawyers um, is a little stifled early. And when they get the opportunity <laughs> to show some of that creativity, it can be... It can be um, uh, super surprising, actually, uh, what they can come up with. One other thing that my team did, and again, the credit goes to the team, is that for one of the go-to-market um, all hands for law, they, it was a Hollywood theme. They actually did a law, law and order theme presentation, except they called it law and sales order. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love it. And so they've just been, they're amazing. The team is amazing in, in being so approachable and so creative. Um now, uh, uh, Irene, I know, I know you've you've written a lot. You're a prolific, actually, um, in relation to gender gap, diversity gap, DE and I generally. Talk a little bit about um, how that's made an impact on you and um, some of the initiatives that you're, let's say, focused on um, uh, around those topics. Yeah, as an Asian American general counsel. Um, I think diversity is really important because I sit in the rooms where oftentimes I might be the only female or I might be the only minority. And so it just brings to light the importance of diversity in a room. Um, and, and again, I think times are changing and I think there's really good um, direction in diversity overall in tech, but the reality is it still is a gap. And so I right so that I can highlight some of the gaps and ways that we can close that gap. And I think that's really important for businesses. When you talk about being behind, is there, is there essentially a bit of a cumulative effect with tech and law? Um, do you think, um, uh, where, if, if you separate those and then put those together, do you, what, what is your view, I suppose, on the progress that's been made um, across both of those sectors, and do you think it's kind of a little bit exacerbated when they're brought together, when you're, you know, in legal, in tech, or, or, or do you think it doesn't? I'd be interested in your views on that. 
That is interesting. I could see how it can be exasperated if you put them together, because even when I attended law school, you know, many years ago, it was yeah. many years ago. We, 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 we don't have to count. Here on this show, we don't count. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, let's yeah, not talk yeah. about that and how many years yeah. ago it was. But it was still 60% female at, at Berkeley. And when I look at the partnership uh, at law firms, that number is still not yet reflected of the number of women that graduated with me. Um, and then when you layer on tech, you could probably see the same at the, at the upper levels. And what I found that was sort of stark and interesting is I'm also doing a video series that's launching in the summer uh, on hypergrowth GCs. So I'm doing that. a similar type yep. where I actually interview hypergrowth GCs. And when I started looking at the list of hypergrowth GCs, GCs that have been part of very rapidly growing organizations, a lot of the GCs that I have found are mostly men. Um, and so it's very interesting to see also within tech, not only within tech, but if you then narrow it down to this category of GCs that have experienced extreme scale at a rapid pace, a lot of the GCs there are men as well, too. So it was actually very enlightening for me as I was look, creating a list. And I wanted to be intentional about representing different voices, and different diversity um, backgrounds. And it took a lot of intentional effort on my part to find GCs of various backgrounds for that narrow category. So firstly, I'm very jealous that I haven't thought of myself doing a series of interviewing hypergrowth GCs. So you beat me to it, Irene. So well done to you. Um, and, and that is a really interesting observation, actually, where, that you struggled essentially to find um, uh, basically minority um, GCs that had been through that experience. That is, I think that is telling um, I have to say, yeah. Um, uh, anything else? I mean, I won't shout out all of your um, uh, achievements and awards because um, there's too many um, that I've got on my research list here, Irene. You are making me feel a little bit under, um, like an underperformer, but that's okay. Most of my guests do. Um, look, you were, I don't know how recent this was, but I know you were selected as the um, an Asian-American a Pacific Islander woman trailblazer quite recently by the, I think it's the Asian Pacific um, American Bar Association. Um, t tell me a little bit, of, how did that come about? What was that for? And tell me what you're hoping to kind of achieve with getting a little, you know, yeah, what, what, what are you hoping to see um, over the next few years? Um, and then I'm going to ask you a little bit about what, how we, what, what can everyone be doing? <laughs> Um, uh, to, to, to assist in you know, get, get, getting there. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I'm passionate about is using my platform for good. So I also also wrote a series on using my platform for good. And so I think, um, or, or people using their platforms for good. Again, I think it comes from my background in the government and wanting to do something that's positive for society. Um, and so even with my um, general counsel background, I try to write about diversity. I try, I'm currently focused on writing about board diversity and the lack thereof. Um, and so I try to highlight some of the gaps and use my voice in that way. And so I'm hoping that um, I don't know the, the actual criteria for why I was chosen for that award, but 
Um, I'm sure some of the work that I'm doing on on top of being a general counsel is probably um, amplifying some of those um, efforts are probably what what helps um, in being selected for those types of roles and awards. Can you give me some point pointers in doing as much as you do? I mean, the management of your time, I just think about how you must be managing your time. Um, uh, and you know, we all talk about balance. In truth, there's no balance. It's just about what are you willing to compromise um, or sacrifice or whatever it might be. Any pointers? What? How do you manage your time um, in a way that, you know, basically allows you to achieve as much as you do. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm not sure I've achieved that balance, nor have I reached that level of success that you're, you, you've. Uh, um, I, I can tell you the success. Yes, the balance. Nobody ever gets a balance, and I think that's a wrong. I think it's a misleading term when we talk about balance because that balance suggests it's perfect. There's all. It's all in equilibrium. Um, it, it's not. Um, But I'd love to hear some of your strategies. Yeah, I mean, I think it's challenging. I have um, two kids as well. I have two boys that are 7 and 10. So not only am I juggling the career, but I also... Really, Irene? Now I'm really depressed. Okay, so you're also raising two boys. How old are they? They're 7 and 10. Um, I always am amazed by by parents of three and more. So... That's when I'm like, wow, I just bow down. <laughs> All right, okay. Okay, I, 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 di- I did, well, I had some some contribution to the raising of three children who are adults now in their, in their 20s. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, I'm not going to take a whole lot of credit because I, you know, I was incredibly privileged. I had my, um, my wife and darling, um, Potter, she was at home full-time and, and she could allow me essentially... Um, to, as you know, a lot of people in my position, divide all of my energies um, into my career. So I was an incredibly fortunate position. I mean, I think my husband works as well. So we're, we're, we're both just juggling at the end of the day. But I think what, from a, from a timeline perspective, I'm just very highly efficient. I think like most mothers, <laughs> I think we have to be highly efficient in order to work and juggle the household as well, too. And so... Um, one of the things that I do is uh, I think everybody that works with me, they know they'll get a very fast, quick response because I'm just powering through a lot of things very quickly. And so um, so I think that's a that's a superpower that I have is the high efficiency and the ability to process things very quickly um, to be able to move quickly. Yeah. And you know, no doubt born out of necessity. <laughs> You've had to actually be able to do that. Um, in, in order to achieve what, what you have, which is fantastic. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, the future of law. Can you talk about what, what do you see the future GC and perhaps the future legal department? Um, what, what, what do you see when you look out ahead, um, and particularly to be successful? To be successful, I think you have to be a true business partner. And I think you have to speak the same way as a business. So I think one of the things that is emerging, obviously, um, is legal operations and technology and leveraging technology. And, you know, just like other areas of the business, people want automation, data, metrics um, in the legal business as well. And so in the legal part of their business. So I think the general counsels need to be incredibly savvy in building that type of data 
a data-driven approach. Um, and so I always, uh, I always emphasize to my team that to the extent that we can get metrics, let's try to build metrics. That's, that's how we can translate our needs, our hiring needs, or challenges. And so um, I think it's pivoting the mindset to a business partner and uh, wearing the same hat and building the same types of metrics, trackable data that the business needs. Um, anything, um, any developments that you're seeing out there um, in legal that that's catching your eye, that you're particularly excited about, that um, that you think is going to make an impact? Anything out there? I think there's an overabundance of contract management systems. Oh, God. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, that, I think, is, is um, there's an overabundance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 um, yeah. We, we won't go into that, but, yeah, I think you're absolutely the, – the, the market is absolutely saturated. But I also um, think it's really cool that legal technology is getting traction and even getting funding. I mean, Pursuit, for example – is one example that's doing something very different in terms of the RFP model for law firms, which I think is very unique and has a has a use case for um, legal departments for sure. And I think fundamentally, every legal department will need a contract management system, which is probably why there's an overabundance, a billing system. Um, those are two fundamental systems that you need. Um, and and so I think I think. Departments will be building upon those two and iterations of those. But frankly, there's a lot of regulations coming down the pipe. So I envision there will be more legal tech that will try to support all the different types of regulations coming down. Yeah, and it's a real, it is a challenge for any legal department to actually navigate their way through um, to understand what is the market offering, what do they actually need, and how do they do a comparison and um, how to choose. Because it's very fragmented, um, as you know, most GCs know now. So um, uh, very difficult to navigate. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops over the next few years, and whether there is essentially whether it's consolidations or whether it's um, uh, ways in which um, to make the decision making from by a legal department easier um, as to what to prioritise and. What to choose. So, um, I'm going to wrap up with a few of my favourite questions. Um, all right, my first one is advice that you'd give to your 25 year old self. Yeah, I would say smell the roses um, again because I'm constantly moving in a very fast, um, fast pace. Oftentimes, um, you know, I I would tell myself, you know, that 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 your career is not always linear and that it is okay. Um, if, if it diverges in certain ways and to smell the roses and give yourself opportunities to fail. And that's okay. It's funny. The smell the roses one, I just, that sounds great, but I wonder whether you'd ever actually have, even if you'd given yourself that advice, where I always talk about that stage of your life, you're so focused on, you know, career achieving your goals and so forth that you, it's almost impossible <laughs> Um, to be that, I won't say driven, but that focused and also um, take the advice that you're absolutely right and given, um, that it's not linear, it's going to take time um, uh, and, and you've got to, whether it's smell the roses, whether it's enjoy, understand it's a journey 
and not just an endpoint, and um, being able to take the time to enjoy, uh, learn from, because that's what we're actually all doing. We're all learning <laughs> on that journey. It's just an accumulation of those learnings that um, uh, that is what it's all about. Um, I think you said at, at the beginning, you're loving to learn. And I think if you can develop that mindset for for but the thing about myself, it was just uh, achieving career goals, you know, getting to senior associate, getting to partner, getting to full equity, you know, rather than, okay, what is the learning that, I, rather than saying, okay, it's about learning and building skills and so, and as a consequence of that, you'll achieve certain goals. But anyway, you, you don't think about it like that when you're 25. Well, I, I certainly didn't. I think I'd still give myself that advice, though, because I feel like I'm also still constantly in a rush. And so, um, yeah, so that's an advice I'd give myself now as well as my 25-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Um, okay, two more questions, um, and I'm going to reverse them. I usually ask them the other way, but I want to finish off on something more positive. I ask, um, what keeps you up at night? I'm going to ask you that question, Irene, now. And then what what what, what kind of gives you hope? So we can finish off, you know, uh, hopefully, on a, on a bit more of a high. What keeps you up at night now? So what keeps me up oftentimes is more um, not necessarily legal substantive matters, but more people-related matters. I care deeply about building a very highly collegial, great team. And so oftentimes if I have to give hard feedback or difficult conversations – I play those in my head sometimes in the middle of the night and that keeps me up at night because I know I'm going to have a difficult conversation ahead. And obviously feedback is a gift, but not everyone views it as a gift. And so some difficult conversations are frankly very difficult and prepping, um, prepping for those um, keeps me up more so than the legal substantive matters. Feedback is hard and most people actually don't do it, don't give it. Um, because it, it is really hard. So the fact that you, um, you you are up at night thinking about it tells me you know you're incredibly thoughtful, um, and that um, and it's an important part of everyone's growth. I think also growth as a manager, <laughs> being really good at having difficult conversations. Um, uh, anything else that you'd call out as keeping you up at night? No, those truly are what keeps me up. Oftentimes, it's really not the legal substantive matters, but again, like team related. And I, I'm very proud to have built an amazing team, both at Checker and at Hopin. We're very tight knit, and we have so much fun together as a team. So I, I just want to keep that kind of a collegial, fun working environment. And so that's incredibly important to me. And what about hope? What gives you hope? Yeah, whether it's work-related, whether it's a bit more broad, what, 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 what makes you hopeful? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of changes in the market right now, um, do- downward pressures, obviously. And I think there will be a lot of changes at Hopin as well as at other companies, I'm sure, as a result of this. Um, what gives me hope is that it, it, provides, it provides stretch opportunities. And so I think there will be opportunities for us to all flex Um, during these times. I think every company will have to flex in different ways and be able to pivot and be able to be flexible. And exercising those those muscles during the the bull market 
it's probably a muscle that's not as exercised uh, because you can readily hire. You can do, you can find resources very quickly. Uh, but in a different market times, I think there requires more creativity, it requires more flexibility, and it requires a different type of skill set. And I'm excited about um, those types of challenges ahead and navigating through those challenges, how, uh, however difficult, because I think it builds different muscles and creates different learning opportunities for myself as well as the team. And the truth is we haven't really experienced that since, you know, 2008, 2009. So there's, there is a significant part of the workforce that hasn't gone through it too. Um, and it, it can be scary, but the skills that you do learn, and I always say sometimes there are going to be decisions where lots of people are going to be laid off um, across all certain industry, all, all industries, and it will feel like the worst thing that's ever happened to them. I'm a big believer in what feels like the worst thing that's ever happened with just time. If you give it time, what happens is that it ends up often being the best thing that's happened. And why? Because a new opportunity is opened up, um, new muscles have had to be developed. Um, new skills and, um, you know, back to the new opportunities. So um, that that longer lens, as you're a little bit older, your lens does get a bit older and you can see when you're earlier in your career, that's hard. And that's often a message that I try to give um, when, you know, in diff- whether it's difficult conversations or when it just feels like from a career perspective it's the worst thing that could have ever happened, it almost never is. It's not always the best thing, but it's always a growth and learning opportunity. Um, and I think that's what you're really talking about. It's that, it's that opportunity um, to develop those new muscles and new skills. I think it's also resilience that time builds. And so I do think that it provides new opportunities. And I think everyone, um, I would encourage people as we're going through these times to, um, you know, think of it in a glass half full kind of way, because I do think it poses new opportunities and new pastures for um, everyone. Irene Lou, it's been fantastic speaking to you. Thank you so much for joining me. I've had a blast. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit.com. P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.